Father, what a privilege it is to come before you to just walk boldly into your throne room of grace and just bow at your feet. You are truly mighty and compassionate and loving. And so often we are undeserving of the mercies that you pour out on us. And yet, I don't, I don't ever want to lose sight of what those mercies are or lose my gratitude for them. And I thank you so much, Father, for the way that you have worked in my life. And I know the way that you have worked in, in a lot of the lives here in this room. And the way you continue to work to transform lives. It's, it's a mighty miracle and a work of your Holy Spirit. And it is a humbling place to be for those of us that, that lead and teach and mentor and disciple to help come alongside others and help them grow in who you are and in their walk with you. Father, we, we truly are inadequate servants relying totally upon you and the, your revelation through your Holy Spirit of your word and your equipping and your empowering. Thank you so much. Thank you, Father, for this, this book of Judges. It's... Um, I'll say it every week. I just love it. it the, the drama, the narrative, the details. It's fun to dig in and to imagine what this time was like and to get a better picture of you in the uh, immense amount of compassion and mercy that you pour out on this disobedient people that continue to just wander from you and, and want to seek other idols. Father, um, as always, I say it every week, we commit this time to you. And we just pray for the pouring forth of your Holy Spirit to teach us and to guide us and to help us to be better ambassadors of your word and of the message of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, we're going to meet our first judges this week as you pull out your homework. And we're looking at Judges 3, 7 through 31. These judges aren't as familiar to us. If I ask anybody, you can ask people on the street, and, you know, have you heard of some judges? And they can generally name Deborah and, and Samson and Gideon, and they know who these people are and some of what they even did. They're very popular. But then some of these, these lesser-known judges, or uh, especially one we're going to look at, Othniel, have, have a lot stronger sense of calling of the Lord and and so much more faithfulness to him, and yet no one even knows who, who, who they are. So it's, it's just, it's really interesting. And then we get people like Shamgar, there's just one sentence about him. We don't really hardly know anything. You have to sit there with that one sentence a little bit and try to figure out, well, what is it? Why is this one sentence here, and what is it I'm supposed to get out of it? I, I'm not, still not 100% sure what I was supposed to get out of Shamgar, but there, but there he is, and there's a reason that God said, what he did about him. So let's, let's just kind of get started. And verse 1. Verse 1, what happens? Repetition. Repetition of a phrase. Remember, some of these phrases, in, in Judges it's going to be more key phrases than key words. And they're going to keep coming up over and over and over throughout the book. They might be one time in a text that you're looking at, but it's going to keep coming up. What does the very first thing out of the writer's mouth, what does he write down in verse 7? What does Israel do? <clears throat> they did evil in the sight 
of the Lord. So here we have Yahweh. How do you spell Yahweh? W-H-Y-H. W-H. And the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are his people, a people of his own possession. These are the people that he miraculously delivered out of the hands of the Pharaoh, out of Egypt, brought them out by an outstretched arm, mighty acts, and he has made this covenant with them that he made with them at Sinai, the covenant of the law, and he is working with them. He has promised them this land all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in the Abrahamic covenant and Genesis 15. He has given them these promises. I will make a great nation of you. I will give this land to you and your descendants. And of course in Joshua, under the leadership of Joshua, they have mighty conquests where they go in and they are able to take the land and begin to settle in it. And now we're at Judges. Joshua has died. There isn't one particular leader in charge like we had Moses and then Joshua. They are, the leaders continue to die, and we're going to continue to see this pattern happen. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. What is the evil that they did? We talked about it last week. Okay, so they, they worshipped. They did evil, and the evil is defined as idolatry. Do you remember what we talked a little bit about that last week, and I thought it would be good to review this week? Is that our definition of evil? What's our definition of evil? <laughs> Politically incorrect. <laughs> have you heard of microaggression? How about, has anybody, have you all heard of microaggression? Well, that's your new politically correct in term, politically incorrect term. Can I give you an example? I know I'm rabbit chasing here. If Patty has a British accent and I go, where are you from, Patty? That's that, that is microaggression because I have stereotyped her. I kid you not, you need to just put in microaggression and all these universities have pages. You can click them on with examples of microaggression. It's crazy. Have you heard of it, Catherine? Microaggression? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Anyway, um, we've diverted there. Uh, <laughs> what, what do we consider evil? Murder, adultery, robbing people, raping women, raping men. Any of those, those evil things that we, we read about in the newspapers every day, that is our definition of evil. And so we come away thinking, I'm not, I'm not evil. I'm not evil. But when I keep seeing this repeated phrase come up, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They worship the Baal and the Asherah. They worship idols. And we can say, as we did last week, well, we don't have Baals and we don't have Asherah, but, don't, but we still have idols, don't we? We, we still have idols. They've just put on different clothes. In fact, they're much more insidious. They wear a different disguise. But honestly, if you sit down and you think about it and you really begin to look at what our idols are, they're no different. 
They're no different. They're just not in the form of a little wood statue in a corner of our house or on our fireplace mantles. But we worship them in just the same. And we go after them just the same. And we have the same expectation of them that somehow they're going to give me self-fulfillment or prosperity or blessing, ease of life, any of those things that these idols promised. So we do the very same thing. Now, I could, we could argue that some of the evil that they did with some of the practices that occurred under the idolatry because under the worships of these idols, there was a lot of sexual immorality that happened. But don't we do that as well? There's a lot of sexual immorality that goes on even within the church, thinking that somehow that's going to provide me with the fulfillment that I think that I, I need and I want. So it really isn't any different, is it? If we think about it. So Yahweh, his people, they do evil in the sight of the Lord. And what happens? God sees this. And what response does he have? He's anger. He is angry. So his response is anger. Anger at what? Who? Yeah, against Israel. Remember we also talked last week about our God is a jealous God. So when it says that he is angry, how do we tend to think of anger? Is anger a good thing? Is anger a bad thing? Okay. Kara said, for God it's righteous, for us it's not so much. Okay, be angry, but sin not in our anger. Is anybody disturbed? Does anybody have any sense of uncomfortableness within you when you read, and God was angry with them, that his anger was kindled against them? No? Everybody's okay with that? Yes? Who said yes? Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, because it disturbs me a little bit. If I didn't know who God really is, and I didn't understand this is a, this is a righteous lang- anger, this is a, a jealous anger in that is the character of God and that he is, he is upset that his people prefer something over him and that they cannot see, I have everything to give you. I am Yahweh. I am that I am God Almighty, anything you could ever need or want is in me. And you have your eyesight over here, not up here. You have diverted your eyesight and you have found this much more pleasing to you. And you think somehow those gods are going to give you what I am the only one that can give you because they are dead gods. Yes, Diane.
That's a good point. Hang on to that just half a second. Let's unfold the storyline. So the anger of the Lord is kindled against them. And he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishafim. How do you say his name? King. I did practice it, but I can't get it. Uh, King of Mesopotamia. And the people served him for how long? Anybody know anything about his name? Did anybody do any research about his name or see anything? This is it. It means double wickedness. And where names mean everything, that tells you something about this king. This name that is given to him in the writing of Judges is actually, a, it's a pejorative where they are, um, they are making a negative statement about him by giving him this name. He is the king of double wickedness, is what, a double-double. So that tells us something about what the, the, his rule was and what it was like for the people of Israel under him because of, of this king. And they, eight years, he has a strong hand on them. And then what do the people do, Diane? What do they do? They cried out to the Lord. Yes. You know, go back to also, we talked a little bit about this last week, but it bears uh, mentioning again. We talked about that they served the Baals and the Asherah, but it says they forgot the Lord their God. What does that mean, they forgot? They didn't obey him. They didn't acknowledge him. He had no importance in their life. But they, hmm? Go ahead. Okay, they lost their sense of gratitude for him. Mm-hmm. We did see last week that little piece of the puzzle that um, a generation dies out and they don't, uh, they're a, a generation that's removed directly from the mighty acts of the Lord. So you can get a sense of a little bit of forgetting there where it's, uh, they weren't as um, upfront witnesses to what he had done. But Israel was clearly taught to teach their children as they go to teach about the mighty acts of God. And they had certain things that they did and observed to teach their children who God is and what he had done. Obviously, they didn't like out of sight, out of mind, completely forget about him because in their anguish, what do they do? They cry out to God. So they do cry out. This gets, this gets really bad. So they, they look up here. And they, they cry out. And I like what Diane said. It seems, and do you all agree or disagree with Diane? It seems that they're crying out, but are they, are they really repenting? I think somebody in here last week said, or maybe it was in my Friday group, said, well, they repented. Did they repent? It doesn't say it, does it? It just says, in their anguish, they cry out. The oppression, what you'll see repeated, you'll hear this description of, of the oppression, and you will often hear that in their anguish, it doesn't say it here in, in verse, at the very, I can't have my glasses on. It doesn't say it right here, but they do cry out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up a deliverer for them. Now, right there, what does that tell you about God? 
They're crying out in their anguish, meaning this is awful. I don't like it. I can't bear it anymore. And I'm going to cry out to whoever I think can help me and get me out of this and bring some relief. So they cry out to Yahweh. And he looks down on that and he raises up a deliverer. So what does that tell you about your God? He is faithful. Okay, so we begin to see he's faithful. He is merciful. What else? Loving. Okay, long-suffering. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why we're putting up several. <laughs> uh, so he is all, well, there's, what you're saying is he's all-knowing, he's omniscient, knowing I'm going to do this, and they're going to do it again. And, okay, so he is, he's all-knowing. He does not what? He does not treat us as our sins reserve, deserve. Um, I'm going to add up the word kind of along with merciful, compassionate. Because I think one thing that moves him is his compassion for their intense suffering and the anguish that they have. Obviously, they're not, I, I do not believe they're repentant at all. So what's moving him to act? One thing that's moving him to act is the compassion that he has for them. But I think there's something else moving him to act. Okay, his plan. Can you elaborate on that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but he, he, has, he has plans for them. And those plans, you know, when we go back to faithful, he, he is faithful to his covenant. Remember, these are his covenant people. He has entered into covenant with them. They're breaking it. They're going to continue to break it. Those of you all that study the prophets, you see how far their breaking the covenant goes, and they reap chastening and curses and bondage because of that as the story plays out. He knows this all-knowing that Catherine's brought up is going to get played out throughout the rest of, of the Old Testament, really, it's that this cycle's not going to change. But the thing I want you to see is, is the two things I see the most important that stand out to me is the fact that he is so compassionate that he would look down on an unrepentant people and want to alleviate their suffering by raising up a deliverer for them. But more than that, he is a covenant-keeping God, and part of covenant is, is the Hebrew word hased, which means loving-kindness. And it involves a, a faithfulness. He is faithful. He is loving kind, has loving kindness that he will stay faithful to the covenant that he has made with these people. And then I also really like what Diane said. He has a plan, and that plan moves him. Because he is faithful, 
because we can trust that what he says he will do, he will do. He is not going to give up on these people. It, no matter how far they stray in his jealous love, he will chasten them. It's a chastening hand of, like you said, um, Annetta, a loving father that cares for you. I'm mad at what you've done, but I'm guessing that the anger was, I want to I pull you back into the right place. Is that correct? Yeah, because of his love, I will chasten. I will do the hard thing, and I will let you suffer under this double wicked king for a period of time because at least then you cry out to me. At least you recognize I'm the one that can help you. And I'm never going to let these nations completely destroy you because my nation can't be destroyed. Do you all see the different layers there? that are coming out as you look at this of who God is? This is your God. The one that's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This is the God that is at work in your life. Praise God. Give him the glory, right? Okay, so who does he raise up? And the judge's name is? Othniel? Othniel. You get brownie points if you could at least try to say these names. Uh, Othniel, what do we know about Othniel? Yes. Yes, somehow related to Caleb. Although when you read commentators, a little bit of disagreement. It's amazing how commentators, if you read them, can go off for pages on minutia that I just get, I just start to go, who cares? But he's related. He's related to Caleb. That's all I really need to know. And we already saw something about him in chapter 1. Do you remember what it was? He married Caleb's daughter because Caleb offered up a prize, didn't he? Whoever goes out and defeats whoever that person was, um, you get my daughter. And he, get, and he does it, and he gets her. And she is, she is commendable because she recognizes the value of the land and asks for more of it and says, go ask daddy for this. Go, go do it. Or, and she asks her dad and sends him, and he does, and he listens to his wife, and he recognizes that she recognizes the value of having this land that God has promised. So what else do you kind of pick up about him? He married a smart woman. He married a believing woman. Because if you go back to chapter 1, in that chapter 1, you begin to see some of them are already starting to intermarry with the Canaanite um, sons and daughters. And he doesn't do that. So he he marries a a Yahweh-believing woman. So that tells you something about him. What else? The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. God is the one that raises him up. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And what does he go and do? What do the words of the text say? He does defeat it, but how does he defeat him? He goes to war, doesn't he? It says he went out to war. Isn't that what it says? Did I misread it? Okay. He went out to war. What what does that tell me something about him? Spirit of the Lord is upon him. 
But he's also obeying the Spirit of the Lord. There's some sense of bravery in him or faith in God that he will go out to war. And remember, this is a king that has had the upper hand for eight years. This is a powerful enemy, and yet he leads the troops and is, goes. He's victorious. I believe he's victorious because the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, and his God is the one that is bringing the victory. But look at this great man's faith, that he looks at this, do what? You want me to go to war against him who has been oppressing us for eight years, who is greater and mightier than us? But in his faith, he does. It says he goes out to war. The Spirit of the Lord is on him. And he defeats them. The Lord, well, actually the Lord, his hand prevails over. The Lord gives, gives this. But he has to have that step of faith to even go. Do you all see that? Okay. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. No, Mesopotamia. What's Jim? Was that Turkey? Yeah. Iraq. Iraq. Okay. 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 Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I knew I needed to look it up, but I didn't. So. I know. Thank you all. Good. Thank you very much. Okay. So they have rest for how long? Forty years. A whole generation of rest. Othniel, son of Kenaz, dies. What happens? They did evil. Where? In the sight of the Lord. Did it again. Notice that time, kind of that time phrase. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what does the Lord do? Gives them over to the enemy this time. Who is it? Eglon, king of Moab. And against Israel because they had done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, uh, is Moab able to do this by himself? Nope. Who's he got going with him? The Ammonites and the Malachites. Okay, it's interesting. This is where um, you read about places, people, and you can't even pronounce the names, and you have no frame of reference, but yet there's some underlying details going on under there. Anybody know anything about the Ammonites, the Malachites, and the Moabites by any chance? Yes. The Moabites and the Ammonites were descendants of Lot. Yeah, yeah. The Moabites at one point tried to attack Israel. That's the whole story of Balaam in the donkey. They want Balaam to um, curse Israel, and he, he cannot curse Israel. And they try to, as they're coming, um, it's in numbers, I think. They try to attack Israel, and yet they're rel- they're, they are relatives. The Amalekites are descendants of Esau. 
So this isn't Mesopotamia, the real foreign enemy. These are more the local enemies that are distant relatives of theirs that have decided to come in and, and rule and reign over them. So he strengthens Eglon. And where's Eglon? There's another little clue, interesting thing that adds texture and layer to the narrative. Where is he? He's, he's, yeah, he, what is, how's he described? A very fat man. What does that tell you about him? Wealthy. He's had a life of ease. Yes. So um, he's living off, well, he's living off this um, occupation of Israel. Because what else is Israel doing? How does, how does Ehud even get to him? He's taking a tribute. What's a tribute? It's a, it's a payment. It's beyond a tax. It's usually quite an exorbitant payment that the, the people that are being subjugated to someone else has to pay them and give to them. So they're, they're required to give it to them. And, and it's a way to keep the people oppressed. It's usually something that is so great that it's, it's taking away from their very livelihood. But they have, you know, Eglon has the upper hand. These people are ruling over them, and they're at their mercy. And part of that is I've got to go pay the tribute to the king. So um, maybe to keep him at bay a little bit, to be able to have any kind of life. But they've got to pay it, and they know they have to pay it. And it's, and it's a humiliation. It's a humiliation to take what you've worked really hard for and have to give it to this, this evil king who has you subjugated. And the king who's asking for it knows it's a humiliation as well. So it's a way of keeping power over them. But where, where is he geographically? There's a description there. It doesn't name the name of the city, but it tells us where Eglon is. Look in verse 13. He is in the city of palms. Easy to skip by that and go, okay, city of palms. Let's move on to the next verse. But what, anybody have an idea what the city of palms is? It's Jericho. In Deuteronomy 34.3, if you want to jot it down and look later, you see a description, the city of palms, Jericho. What happened at Jericho? Deuteronomy 34.3. What happened? At, why is Jericho so significant? It was the site of Israel's first great victory when they went into the land. It's their first conquest, and it's one that was done by a mighty hand of God because they never fought. Remember, they just marched around the city. Yes, and the walls came and tumbling down. Yes, so that, that is Jericho. Jericho, I believe, if I'm correct, was left desolate, and in uh, Joshua 6, there was even a curse placed upon anyone who would rebuild there. So here you have a place that is Israel's great victory as they enter the land, and yet right now in this period of history, because they've done evil in the sight of the Lord and forgotten him and decided to serve Baals and the Asherah, they are defeated by someone sitting in their place of conquest. Do you, do you see the irony of that? Mm -hmm. That's the irony of that. And that's where 
as Jim and I are trying to teach you, you start at, you ask those questions. Don't just whiz by City of Palms, think, City of Palms, where's that? Is there some significance? Now, there may not be, but here there is. So there's huge irony in that. Here's this guy in, in that has set up his little place there, little vacation spot, and enjoying the cool breeze, right, right? Um, it's, it's pretty in Jericho. It's kind of, it, it is, I've been there, and there are lots of little palms, and it's surrounded by desert, and it's like this little oasis here, very nice, very pretty, very pleasant, um, surrounded by that which is unpleasant. So it's kind of his little, little vacation spot, and he's enjoying it. And, hey, while I'm here, you guys can bring up my, my tribute to serve me. And what do you, uh, further humiliation to Israel to think this was our first victory. When our people came out, this was the first place where God displayed himself and we had victory. That's sad, isn't it? That's a sad state of affairs. Okay, so he's, he's very fat. Ehud, are, are one of our main characters. What do you learn about him? What's interesting about Ehud? He's left-handed. Why is that, why is that significant? I had a lesson in sword last night because I'm sitting there trying to think that through and I'm, and I'm going, Vance, when you, of course, I'm thinking guns, right? The gun, here. I've never shot a gun in my life, by the way, y'all. It's just from watching Westerns. The gun would be on the side that you would pull up. So I said, well, why would you, why would you do this? And so Vance has to explain all that to me and how you would get the, the sword. And I'm like, oh, okay, now I get it. So he's, he's left-handed. Um, how would a left-handed person have been viewed? Hmm? Was it an ex exceptional ability? But what else? A handicap. Kind of anomaly. You know, I mean, even, even um, oh, some of you all, Someone might have a story in here of being in school when you were when little, and if you were left-handed, they made you right, right-handed. Did that happen to anybody in here? To you? So do you write right-handed? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it was considered wrong. There was something wrong with you. It was a handicap. It was a disability. Yeah, to, to use your left hand. Um, what is this? How's the uh, right hand referred to a lot in scripture? I didn't give you scriptures to go look at, but just think about what you know. The right hand of God. Where's Jesus set at the right hand of God? Yeah. If you go and you kind of do a word study on right hand, you'll see lots of references to God and his right hand and his right hand. Right hand is a sign of, of might and of power and a place of privilege to sit at the right hand of God. And yet here we have this man who is left-handed. So detail, but important detail. What? Go ahead. Yeah, if they frisked him down, they wouldn't have looked there. They'd assumed he was right-handed and his sword would be on the left. So what might be considered an amorality or a disability was actually, um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
it was to his advantage in this situation that he didn't get pressed down and he could hide that sword, that specially made sword in his, against his leg and they didn't know it was there and they never suspected. Because what happens, they pay the tribute to him, they leave, the little entourage leaves, but Ahu turns back and says, I, I've got a message from the Lord for you. Why would he let him in alone, send all of his attendants out and let him in? One, he's curious what this message from the Lord is, but because he, he, he would, didn't view him as a threat at all. He, he wouldn't view him as a threat. They get in there, they get the door shut, it's alone, mano mano, just the two of them, and what does Ehud do? Kills him. Okay, the Bible's very graphic, isn't it? <laughs> and, and what it is, when what happens takes that sword, plunges it in. It just kind of grosses me out. But. I know, the Blood and Guts Club, they would love this story. Who was it? Was it Drew Moss that preached on that? The Blood and Guts, this good Blood and Guts story for the Christian kids that aren't allowed to watch anything. So, anyway, so it, he goes all the way through and what happens? It's graphic, it's gross, but it's there in the scripture. What comes out? Dung comes out. Kills him. The dung pours forth. And, I mean, you can just let your imagination go on that one. Um, it allows Ehu to escape. And so Eglon's attendants come. And King Eglon's taking a long time. Now, do, do you see all the graphicness of this? It's almost kind of a funny story in a way. Because what do they think? And why would they think that? Because it smells really bad. You know, here's our fat king, and he's in there, and it smells really bad, and how embarrassing. And so they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, because it would be an embarrassing thing to go in on the king while he's in there, doesn't it say, relieving himself. And they wait so long, it allows Ehud to get away, and then they finally go in, and they find him dead. Is God not a God of details? God is in the details. Sometimes you just have to step back and say, what are the details and how's your hand in this? And here's a very graphic story to see how God's hand is, is in all the details. Now, some people will argue that this was a very devious way for Ehud to get access to him and kill him. And, you know, I don't know if it is or not, or if it was the right thing to do or not. It, to me, it doesn't matter. Look at what he does next. When he knows he's dead and he leaves, what does he do? No, after that. What does Ahu do? He sounds the trumpets and does what? Where is that? What verse? Okay. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And look what he says. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after them, seized the, for, seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day 
under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for not one generation, but for two, 80 years. So it was really interesting to me to see all these commentators, a lot of them beaten up on Ehud about the deviousness of what he did, and yet missing, he comes back and he sounds the trumpet, and he goes, come on, guys, we got it, and leads him into battle against all of those people. That, to me, showed a great deal of bravery on his part. So, anybody, anybody else know that? Yeah, Diane. I, I noticed that too. I thought it was, I, I, and I'm glad you brought that up, because I noticed the same thing, and the first thing I thought is, why, why does it say that? Why does that keep getting mentioned? I mean, I know some of what happened at Gilgah historically, but I, don't, I didn't come up with a conclusion on that either. Jim, do you have some insight into that? Well, it's obviously a, a detail that's being brought up, because it says at, at the, the idols at Gilgal, he t that's where he turns back. And then after he kills the king, it mentions again passing by. Yeah, I know. I searched, Diane, because I had the exact same question as you did. I read everything I could get my hands on, and no one, other than what happened, some of the historical events that happened there, I, do, I think when they first came into the land, um, that's where they set up the 12 stones in, as remembrance of, of who God is. So the best I could come up with was the irony of this was a place to remember what God had done, and there's idols there. But not one commentator made anything out of it. But I kept thinking, I was just like you. There's a reason that's there. So I didn't. Ha I can't help you there. Yeah. Oh, there's a good insight. Your idol was blind. Oh no, that's good. That's an excellent insight. Their idol was blind, so couldn't even observe, notice him coming and going to protect them. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And what the name of the city means. Yeah. That help? It's good. Yeah, that was a good observation. Okay, so um, are we finished with Ehud Eglon? Yes. Then we come up to um, Shamgar, and what do we know about him? I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it whispered around here. He had an ox goad. What was an ox goad? Anybody know? basically a cattle prod. I read somewhere it could be as long as eight feet long and as much as um, six inches wide at one end. It would have a prick on one end to, um, you know, prod the oxen, get them go. And it would have a little blade on one so they could, you know, use it to get the mud out of their shoes. So, that, so that's, that's what it was. What was it not? It really wasn't a whip. <laughs> So that tells you something about Shamgar, does it not? He doesn't even have at his disposal normal weapons. We, we don't know. See, here's questions you can ask, and we don't know. Well, did he do this all by himself? Did he rally some people and they did it together? Did he by himself kill 600? I can't imagine that, although God has done much greater miraculous things. Did he have a band of people that together they killed 600? in one swell-proof swell battle, or was it over a period? We don't know. All we know is Shamgar had an ox goad. That's all he had. But somehow in his faith, he was able to commit this mighty act or lead people in this mighty act and kill 600 Philistines so that then they had a period of rest. And that's really all we know about him. And I sat with that for a long time. Again, kind of like Diane, what's the significance of the Gilgal? Trying to figure it out and not really, and, and wondering why there's just this one sentence about him. And, and I don't have an answer other than that's what God chose to do and that's all he chose to give us about him. Yeah, and that, that you know, that's it. That's all I have. Okay, um, let's wrap up. He saved Israel. 
He did save Israel. Yeah. We've learned several things about God. What would you want to add to? You had a question in your homework about what does this text specifically teach about God? And we looked at all of these things about him. But is there anything else we didn't cover that stuck out to you that God revealed to your heart this week that showed you something about him that this text reveals? He is able. Yes, he is. Mm-hmm. He uses all different people, and he uses unlikely people. And he uses unlikely instruments, doesn't he? Did you see an ox goad? Okay. What else? The importance of obedience, because what happens if, I, if when they didn't obey, what happened? Yeah, they was angry and they fell into distress, but he is faithful and he is loving. He is like a loving, kind father that will not let his kid get too far into sin. He is a God that pursues and chastens for their benefit, not to harm, but to bring them back. Okay, what else? He is always consistent. Yes, how do you see the consistency? Okay. Okay. No, it doesn't change. What does change? He will consistently do what he said he will do. We just may not know how. We may not know the method or the means or the people that he will use to do it. There's the surprise element, and you're going to see that more and more as we walk through Judges. And you can see that if you step back and look at your own life, especially those of you all that live longer, I think you can see that. If you start looking at how God has worked in your life, there's been some surprises in there, haven't there? Mm-hmm. But yet God was there. He was consistent. He was consistently there. It just might not have played out the way you thought it was going to play out. And he might not have done what he was going to do through the means that you thought or you anticipated. So we can't put him in a box like that. Okay, I want to close this out with this question, this kind of application question, and see how you all answered it on number 11. I think number 12, we know exactly what ways we might follow the pattern of the Israelites because we've all done this, haven't we? Stray from him. Reap the consequences, cry out, help, 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 deliver me, get me out of this mess. Um, But how, when we talk about forgetting the Lord, a lot of times some of that is a, I know these things about him. I have this intellectual cognitive knowledge about him. But something's missing down here in the heart. Or I stray in my heart even though I know what is up here. So how... What do, you, what do you do to make sure what you know about him and what you remember about him and about God stays there in your heart, stays up there? What do you all do? How do you do that?
Yeah. Okay. Could you all over here hear her? Yeah. Good answer. Both of those are good answers. Anybody else want to share? It is a personal relationship. Right. You know what? Sometimes it takes an effort. That's one of the reasons in your homework I'll often say, you know, it, it's pretty much worded the same. I really do try to kind of rewrite it a little bit when on the study and the questions, you know, make your observation. Here's the text we're looking at this week when your observations are complete. I'll sometimes say, remember, pray, remember, pray, because, you know, I don't know. Some of you, this is not a problem. For me, it is. I can just start digging in and studying, and, and I have to sometimes go, whoa, stop. Genevieve will remind me of that, but with the things she says, whoa, stop. Don't do any more until you commit this to prayer. Because, yeah, I can, because of my giftedness, go in there and get a lot out of it. But heaven forbid that I would do that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. I can do it. That's scary. That's very scary. But um, I, I have to make myself stop and go, whoa, back, back off first. Spend some time in prayer and commit this to him before you, you take one more step in the territory of his word. So these are all, these are good things. It's something to think about because I think if you walked with the Lord long enough, everybody in here has experienced a time where you, where you, knew, you knew him, but you were kind of moving away from him. And that's what Israel does. They just do it to an extreme. And we can do it to an extreme as well. What do you need to put in place in your life to prevent that? And I like that. Write down those prayer requests and how God has answered them and go back and look. Get you an accountability partner. Make sure you have people in your life that will speak truth and love to you when they see you straying and will ask you the hard questions. When's the last time you prayed? When's the last time you just had some quiet time with the Lord? You know, be in a Bible study. Be in a Sunday school class. Make sure you're at church as regularly as possible. All of these things fit into being able to do that. So. I think it does. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Then you can call them up, memorize scripture. Okay. Yes, Nicole. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It's minute by minute. I'll leave you with a funny statement. I, my friend Cindy can be so funny. And this is so true, and you'll relate. She put on Facebook a couple of years ago. If you think sanctification follows you into Walmart after church, you would be most mistaken. <laughs> and we've all had that experience. So we know how quickly it can happen, right? 
come out of church feeling pretty holy and right with the Lord, and it can all fall apart in seconds in Walmart. So let's take a break, and we'll hear Jim. I want you to think about what your response would be. You don't have to raise your hand and talk first. That's how I usually handle things. Um, I was the guy that, I have a teacher say, okay, I want you to think about this. Yes, Jim. Oh, no, I'm just, I'm ready to ask a question right now. I'm ready before you even say anything. I got a question about that. So, or I got a response, or I've got an answer. Um, the, the question that I want to kind of wrestle with this morning, which is in our text, and I was a little surprised it wasn't repeated as often as I would have if I had written Judges. Um, did evil, that's in, the, in our text, is it not? Did evil, and the context of doing evil is what? It goes, it's a phrase after us. And the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. So I think that's kind of an interesting dynamic as well. But if I were to say to you, like, what kind of evil did they do? Okay? What, what, is, what does evil look like? Okay? What does evil look like? Because uh, one of the things that the Bible does is it, it describes evil. Does it not? And biblical teachers describe evil. And it's uh, moms and dads describe evil. So this is a, this is a, there was a president not that long ago that made a comment about evil and got in trouble for it. How dare you talk about evil empires? Who are you? Who are you to describe evil? Right? So this isn't like a simple term. They did evil. Okay, so if I were to just say to you, kind of remove it. From the judge's context, if I were to say, yeah, I've got this friend and they did evil, what did they do? Tell me what they did that was so, like, I'm going to use the word evil to describe their attitudes, actions, and behaviors. Like, describe evil to me. Okay, is that what you think of? If I were to say to you, hey, I got this friend of mine and he's really evil, would your first response be, they forsook the Lord? They did not worship in the gathering of the assembly on the Lord's day. They were, e they were that evil. Right? So I, I'm not disagreeing with you, I promise you. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm saying, but when we talk about that, right? When we talk about, like, doing evil, where do we usually go? Satan? Violence? ISIS? Yes? Say that again? The law, like, expand a little bit. That's evil. Okay, so then the law decides, not necessarily the Bible, right, but our culture then begins to decide, like treason. Dun, dun, dun. Not treason. Nobody wants to be treasonous, right? You don't want that. You don't want to be a traitor. So think about it. If I were to, if I were to describe evil, my friend is evil, then the categorical... Ideas that I use are, are usually like pretty bad, like pretty terrible. And so what I want you to think about on this concept of evil, if I could begin to add a word to it, um, it's like ethics. What is wrong and what is right? And from ethics, we actually develop a concept or an understanding of morality. Now what's fascinating is, is I am grateful to be a part of a conservative church movement. 
that loves to talk about morality. And I, I, I think that's fine. I really don't have any, any like, initial gut reaction. If anything, I, res- I get it. Like, I respond to it. The evil that exists in the world. Like, the really, really bad things, right? Like, I, I totally get that. And I appreciate it, and I think it's even good to talk about, okay? So I'm not, I don't want to just try to go away from that. I don't want to try to even, ch- I don't even want to try to even change the categories, like, I, I really do believe that all the things that we just described are evil. They're totally evil. Um, but what I want to kind of wrestle with a little bit is the God perspective on what evil is. And then, so then how can he say that? And therefore, how does who we worship mold and shape how we live? How does who we worship mold or shape how we live? Because I think that becomes one of the great theological questions of our, of our time and of the book of Judges, okay? Because the book of Judges is going to describe, and I'm, I'm going to kind of give you a bit of a heads up, the book of Judges is going, is going to continually describe like terrible things that people do, like evil things. When you read it, like Nancy was describing the blood and the guts type stuff, um, it's, going, it's going to get worse than that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be it's gonna be pretty rough, like pretty bad, okay? Um, and where does that bad come from? Is that what makes God angry? Or has actually something else happened that get us to that point? What I want to do a little bit is to kind of pull back the veil, not just on Israel, but even on like us and in humanity, to kind of pull back the veil and say, like, how do we get to wrong morals? How did we even get there? Did anyone even think about that? Like, how did we get there? Is it just bad parenting? And I would argue it's not so much bad parenting as much as it is wrong, this might surprise you, wrong worship. It's about worshiping. It's all about worshiping. And going back to that, that the, the book of Judges is all about worship. And worshiping the wrong thing and let me add another category, or the right thing wrongly. Can you hold on to that? There's two ways that you can get this wrong in the book of Judges. You can either worship the wrong thing. Or you can actually worship the right thing wrongly. Which is, by the way, what Israel is going to wrestle with. And, and I, I, the beauty of my hour is I don't have to stay as much in the book of Judges. So I get a little more room to talk about this. And so this is what we're going to see more of. Let's be, we're going to be honest with the text. This is what we're seeing more of in the book of Judges. Okay, But as Israel, as we, as we look at the, the larger narrative of Israel as they're moving forward, what we're actually going to see is the answer isn't just, like, you have to pay attention to this. Pay very close attention to this as the stories even move forward. Because there can be Yahweh done wrong. There can be God worship in an inappropriate way. And if you don't believe me, just ask the people at the golden calf. They were worshiping the right thing wrongly. I, I genuinely believe that. And if you read Aaron, he says it, right? Tomorrow we will have a festival to Yahweh. 
And we're going to do that. How? By just erecting this beautiful golden calf and bowing down and kind of performing, I know, like a ritualistic sex orgy to celebrate fertility. Right? So it's that blending together of fertility with the gods. And God sees this, and it is highly, highly offensive. And it's not just because people are having sex. It's, it's much deeper than that. Like, that offends God, but actually that's not the first offense of God. And, and we need to kind of be able to move through that. that. Where this becomes really helpful for us is I think what you will see by the time we're done here is not just, oh, aren't you just as bad as them? Sure. Maybe. Ah, not so much. Whatever it is your category is. But aren't you like them? Not just in their badness, but in the way that they think. In the way that they function. In the way that they worship. In the way that they reflect upon God. Let me, let me ask this question, because I'm hearing a lot of people use this phrase, and I have a Bible study with a bunch of guys that I meet with uh, this morning, and we're talking about uh, spiritual formation and the use of the disciplines of biblical study and biblical memorization and uh, biblical meditation, okay? So that's what, that was our conversation for today. And I heard a lot today, we need to memorize the scriptures. And, uh, and, and if I were to even say, why do we need to memorize? You'd give me a good answer. We need to memorize the scriptures so in our time of need, we would know how to use them. Okay, I, I kind of get that. I, I, I think I agree with you. We need to study the scriptures, okay? We really do. We need to study the scriptures. And so, yeah, let's study it or let's meditate on it, Okay. But here's a question that I want to just always have in our mind. But is it possible for us to study in the wrong way and just keep feeding ignorance? Is it possible for us to meditate on the scriptures in a wrong way? Do you know anybody that uses scripture memorization as more of, and this is a key thing that we're going to see with this, as more of an abracadabra than a trusting in the word of the Lord, right? The phrase that I've been using for the last few years um, is, are you in the, in the system of or in the way of uh, trying to use the word of God to manipulate God for your benefit? Do you know anybody that does that? I do. Have faith, have the fur coat. Right? Isn't that true? Word of faith type, name it and claim it, right? But, but, but let me, that's not me. I, I'm not that way, okay? But where I do get, you know, duped into some of these things, and, and this is where you're going to even see some of these issues come up with the book of Judges, is even though I, I'm smart enough to know that I don't name it or claim it, where I can easily get duped into believing that is if I walk in the way, then things ultimately... And what I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I, don't, I have to really slow down because my, when I say ultimately, I don't mean in eternity. I mean like in the foreseeable future, but I could probably wait a couple of years, right? Like ultimately this is going to work out, right? And, and I'm, you know, you, you, oh, Jim, you mean like 10,000 years into eternity, we'll be able to look back and see the hand of God. Well, sure, then too, but let's be honest, right? Like I'm not, I'm not just hanging on that Max has got all these illnesses so that in eternity I'll be okay with it. Like I'm thinking like some real cool book deal is going to come from this or 
83 people are going to come to Christ at his graduation when he walks across the stage and everybody stands and applauds and then bows down and worships the Lord because of how, right? Like that, kind of, yeah, I can wait till May, right? And then the Lord will be glorified in his life, right? Like I can wait till May. Um, right, do you see what I'm saying? And so it's not even just name it and claim it for a coat. Sometimes it's, or at least I'll, be even, I'll even be able to come to terms with this. Like, I'll learn to even be okay with this. So it, it doesn't have to be fixed. It doesn't have to be cured. But what happened, I mean, is, is there still something, and this is my challenge to you, is there still something wrong or broken in that mentality? Is there still something that we need to be cautious about? And I, I really don't want to be a broken record, but we're doing the book of Judges, so there's going to be some, let's go back and talk about this again, Okay. And the, what I love is these are like continual themes of the Bible, and in that sense, I don't feel bad about doing them. So I want to begin at the end of 2. I know we're starting at, what, 3-7 or 3-6? 3-6? But I want to go back and I want to just kind of begin in 2:21 to see kind of what God is doing, okay? And phrases or kind of concepts that I want you to think about are this, like a pragmatic religion or a utilitarian religion, okay, which I'm not even saying it's all bad. I'm not trying to say, the one thing about Christianity is it's not practical. No, it really is practical. But let me say this, it is practical on God's terms, not ours, that the practicality might stand beyond your and mine ability, our ability to understand or appreciate it, okay? Let me say that again, that the practicality of the Christian faith is not just ours to discern and understand and appreciate. It literally, it runs at a level that stands, whether you want to talk about it like above us or kind of this, it is the rock, it is the foundation beneath our feet that we just assume. Like I just walked around all day today and I didn't realize, wow, like isn't it nice to have ground? So that we don't like just fall through space. Like isn't it nice that we have something that we're walking on? And this is kind of the, one of the major issues that happen in the book of Judges that we miss. Because why? Well, I'm just I'm trying to figure out not to have an affair. I'm trying to figure out how not to get caught in embezzlement. I'm trying to figure out how not to use bad words. I'm trying to figure out how not to look at porn. I'm trying to figure out how to, how to you know, do, do nice things. For, that's what I'm trying to do. And so I got these lists of things that I need to do. I'm trying to understand morality and ethics, and I don't want to do evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, honestly, just go to a normal person outside of a judge's class and say, I don't want to do evil in the sight of the Lord. What should I not do? They'll give you a different list than the book of Judges will give you. Totally different list. And I'm fine for the other list, but this list actually offers more. Verse 21 says this. God speaking, I thought this is kind of interesting. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. So there's the reason. Whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord. Now listen to this phrase I thought was interesting. As their fathers did. By the way, usually when we're in this section and we're talking about Israel acting like their fathers, is it good or bad? It's usually bad. So notice this. Here's what's interesting. When we get to the judges, we're not coming off of 40 years in the wilderness. We're actually coming off of 40 years of faithfulness. 
Did you know that? So these aren't, judges are not the children who died in the desert. It is the children of those who died in the desert. Does that make sense? And so that phrase is kind of a very interesting phrase. What, I, what I'm going to do is Joshua and his generation, Joshua, Caleb, the children who, who buried their parents and then walked across the Jordan, they were faithful. Not perfectly faithful, but they, they did a lot of what they were supposed to do. Okay? And by the way, they only, I, I love this. Um, it wasn't Joshua who was to blame. Joshua then sends them out and says, you need to go do this. You need to finish it. But in Joshua, you, or in Judges, you actually, you have this, this kind of this reminder or this prediction of what's going to ultimately happen if a good generation from bad parents don't hand that good generation on to the next generation. Okay? I, just, I love the orange concept of churches helping parents disciple their kids, Right? for even future generations, and try to think about the longevity that, that is necessary so that they don't walk. And, and, and God here, he says, listen, I'm going to see whether or not they do this or not. Verse 23, so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And so as the story then continues in verse 3, and I want to jump down actually to verse 7. Okay, which is our text for today. I want to go off this phrase. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And what is the evil? And this goes back to what, how the Lord describes it. And this is what's kind of, what I would love for you to do is, as you're walking through the book of Judges, like highlight the evil that they do. And see how much it lines up with what you consider to be evil. Okay? And again, I'm grateful for my father and my mom who and sometimes got it and sometimes didn't get it, but my dad really did get a lot in terms of understanding like where evil really came from, where evil really, really came from. And my dad was really, really good. For example, my mom and dad, I've shared this with you, my mom and dad spent years praying that I would never really amount to much financially. <laughs> and I remember them praying that over me. Man, I really pray you always kind of struggle for money. That was one of their prayers. And I'm listening to this going, seriously? Like, why are you doing this? And I remember my mom saying, because I know you. And I know your heart. And I know how you can get impressed. My dad would always say, you're the one always impressed with a little pony on your shirt. Oh, you got to be a pony on your shirt. And my dad would just mock that. And then my dad would just say, there's something broken about a man who needs a pony on a shirt. <laughs> Boom. I showed... No, I didn't show him. Anyway, so, so my, my parents literally would pray that. My mom would always say, would always, she'd always say, I prayed for you today. And I'd say, what did you pray for? And she'd always say the same thing. I would just, and it was okay when you were five, but when you were like 28, it got a little weird, you know? I just prayed you'd be a good boy. <laughs> what does it mean to be a good boy? And my mom would go into this long list of things in terms of what it meant to be a good boy. And my, and my mom wouldn't even use like complicated words like pornography or my mom would just pray for like that you would love the Lord, that you would learn to trust him. and that you would. So she had this very, I would call simple, but actually the, what I'm looking at it now is kind of like more foundational. But all of these things are going to, my dad never, maybe because we didn't use it, my dad's, my dad's swear words were not the F word or all the other, my dad's, the words that you just never even imagine saying 
was the Lord's name in vain. Like that was the, what you never say. Everything else just shows you're an idiot. My, that was my dad's rule. It just shows you're ignorant and have no self-control. But the words that are just like crazy, like words that I've never said, right, are those kinds of words. Why? Because, again, my dad understood this like it really has to do with Yahweh. It really does. We may have bad words for sex and bad words when we're angry, but that's not really the, fund the fundamental issue is how do you view and see God? That's, and that's, a, I think, an important thing. I'm, I'm glad for that lesson that was given to me. So notice this. Done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and, and look at the next part of verse 7. What did they do that was so bad? Are you ready for this? They forgot. They forgot. Can you believe how evil they were? How many of us use that as an excuse for not doing things? Forgot. I actually had an opportunity to, to do some orange stuff with Paul Weiss. We were with a family kind of working through a young man uh, in their home last night, some, some sin type issues in his life. And as we are having one of these real honest conversations, the parents were ready to just strangle their son. Oh, because whenever there was ever an issue, he just kept going, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, I didn't know. And they're like, is this normal for like a 15-year-old boy? To which I said, yes, their brains aren't working right now. But then I looked at him, I said, but that doesn't excuse it. Like you think you go, oh, I forgot. So then there's no consequences. No, there's huge consequences in my house for forgetting. You can't forget. And so I, I think it's interesting so what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Okay, so we've got ethics and morality, but I kind of want to just dig down a little bit deeper. Here is what is absolutely evil, is to forget. Just think about that for a moment. I forgot Yahweh. What does that mean, by the way? Think about what that would mean in this context, to forget Yahweh. Like, does it mean that they didn't go to the temple or they didn't, right? Like where, and, and, and I also want to think about this, like where are we in danger of forgetting Yahweh, right? So by the way, this is going to affect ethics, but right now it's deeper, okay? It's going to play itself out in ethical things. But right now, it's not even just, it's not, it's not, it's unethical, but it's not the way we usually would think about it in terms of morality and ethics. What does it mean to forget Yahweh? What, what is, what, what, what should they remember about Yahweh? Which, by the way, Nan, or, uh, uh, Nancy slash Diane, I just did a quick rundown on Gilgal. Fascinating. Fascinating. So, it's, it appears to be the first place that they took part of the Passover after not doing the Passover for 40 years. It also is the place where they continually went back and renewed the covenant. It is a repeated phrase in the book of Hosea, which is strange. It comes up. It comes up, I think, four times in Hosea, twice in, uh, in Amos, and, and, and there it's described as now this wicked place. But it is, about, it is consistently through the Samuel, and, and not so much Judges, it almost stops here in the Judges account. But in the Samuel accounts, it is where you go. It's where Saul was first proclaimed king, and it is where Israel goes back to remember and to swear allegiance to God. I, I need to do more on it, but I just, I leaned over to Steve and I said, I got to look at this. This is fascinating. So that's, and by the way, guess what this is? Guess who named Gilgal? Yahweh himself. 
And it literally means, at this place, I took from them the effects or the, the work of Egypt in them. And therefore, they named that place Gilgal. Which I'd have to go back and look at what the Hebrew Gilgal means, because it's probably a connection of a couple of Hebrew words. So it's kind of interesting. There's a lot there in terms of Gilgal. Nancy? Well, one thing I read about it was that it was kind of like a mm-hmm. 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 Yep. Kind of like Ebel and Gerizim, the mountains are there, but it's not a city. It's a place where the people would go to congregate. Yeah. So, fascinating. Um, so going back, I was thinking about that in terms of the forgetting, right? The covenantal reminder of Gilgal, the covenantal remember of Passover, the covenantal remember. So what are they, what are they supposed to remember and what did they forget? What did they forget about Yahweh? Did they for, let, let's, let's be honest. Like, did they forget that he was God? No. I don't think they forgot that he was God. I don't think if I were to catch an Israelite, hey, who's Yahweh? I have no idea who you're talking about. I think they would go, no, he's the God of Israel. Okay, so you didn't forget him? No, I didn't forget him. So think about this. When we talk about God, and do you believe in, that, that question is almost useless to say to people. Do you believe in God? And by the way, do you believe in Jesus is virtually just as useless. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? Not really the question. That's not what they forgot. They didn't forget his name. Okay? What did they forget about him? And in essence, as the next verses continue, it kind of actually answers it. So they forgot Yahweh. We won't answer it now. We'll come back to it in a second here. They forgot Yahweh, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherah. Okay? So the Baals, Baals, and the Asherahs. So they forgot God, and then they served Baal and Asherah. So then what does that mean that they forgot God? What did they forget about him? Okay, if they forgot that he was jealous. Okay, they forgot that he was faithful. Say it again. Yes. And I I really think this issue here is a bigger issue than we fully understand. And I think this thing here kind of plays itself out. But this thing here, I think, really gets at the rub of a human issue that causes every single one of us to become idolaters. Because the two things that I keep coming back to, I see it all the way through the scripture, is provider-protector. Is that E-R or O-R? Protector, protector. Thank you. So this, I think, is absolutely critical. He is faithful to what? Provide and protect, right? Like He is jealous for what? When you seek provision and protection from somewhere else, okay? And connected, I think, to this is identity, right? So we keep talking about this. That's why it's, it's not just a, you know, I don't think it's just a, it's not a modern phenomenon that everybody's talking about identity, and I'm a this American, and I'm a that American. No, it really cuts to the very core in terms of who you are. Yahweh actually says, like, I am Yahweh, your God, and you are my people. Those are identity terms, right? And you're not going to live like this. Why? Because you're my people. It's, it's almost like God says, listen, yeah, I know like Baal, and I know what his people act like. I mean, they act like their God, which, by the way, going back to what Noel described, one of the, there's a great book by G.K. Beale. It's, it's, it's got some, it's a beefy book. 
but it's described we become like what we worship. And one of the reasons why people are called blind, deaf, and dumb who are idolaters is because why? Their idols are blind, deaf, and dumb. They cannot see, they cannot speak, and they cannot hear. And therefore, our people become. By the way, God's response to idolaters over time is that he will become, watch this, blind to their plight, but he will see it. He will become deaf to their cries, right? And he will not speak to them. He will let them be in their own. You know, I mean, that's a God piece. Hey, tell you what, you want to worship Asherah? <laughs> let, me, let me know how that works for you. You want to do that? I will give you over to that. And this is another major theme in the book of Judges, right? We, we see this continue, especially in this chapter. The pattern is they, and, and this, I, I really thought that it would say this three times. It doesn't. It does say, it doesn't say they did evil in the sight of the Lord three times, but it does say, and the Lord gave them over to. This kind of the stepping back of God, giving them over to, to the ones that you want. If you want it, I'm going to let you have it a little bit, which we've talked a lot about, so I don't want to go down that road too much. But this becomes a major piece to this. So first, let me be kind to my health, wealth, gospel people, okay? Because I think many of them, not all, but many of them are brothers and sisters in Christ who are immature and wrong, okay? And by the way, I got my own issues too, so I'm not coming as a, and I don't have any of those. No, I do too, and I need to be humble and, and recognize, ah, someday someone's going to really show me where I needed to grow up in the Lord, and I'm, actually, I look forward to that day. I'm not afraid of that day. Um, but I, I kind of, to give them a little bit of a break, like, they're striking at a, at a right chord that God will provide and that God will protect. That God will provide, that is a biblical concept. The danger of all heresy is that they take a true statement and they make it the most important statement. They take an attribute of God or a result of what God is doing and they make it the. And that's when you can begin to really misunderstand or misappropriate, Okay. And notice that Romans 1, we're going to keep coming back to. Romans 1, the Apostle Paul warns that what people tend to do, and this is his accusation against his day, people take created things and make them gods. That's what they do. They take created things and they make them, they begin to worship them. That's what Paul says. And by the way, Paul says in Romans 1 that what is God's response to that? And therefore God gave them over to these things. Which is, by the way, is very similar to Judges, isn't it? God gives them over, which our theology so doesn't like in America, right? That's how we get what is known as easy believism. Say something once, you're good for eternity. Only in America do you get that kind of weird guarantee, okay? And the West, I shouldn't say. It's not just America. Canadians are just as crazy. Not worse, but on different issues. So when you look at the provider and protector mentality so they forgot Yahweh was both their provider and their protector. And particularly, and this is where the faithfulness piece comes in, it is about covenant. So what does that faithfulness look like in provider, protector? It is that covenant faithfulness, right? And therefore, since you've got a relationship, like Andrea, Andrea catches me, like kissing another woman. She doesn't go, well, you're an independent and uh, person with your own will and purposes in life. And who am I to? No, she's like, that's my Jim. And it is. I made a covenant before God with so she has every right to be jealous. 
right? She's not, she actually should be messed up in the head if she didn't be, if she wasn't did. And for, well, I'm going to remove a little bit of her, like her love for me. I'm talking about like she's got a right to me beyond love. She's got a right. So God's jealousy actually comes from the fact that he's made a covenant with us. That's kind of how God's jealousy comes in on, right? So these are actually great words for, for what we're looking at. And so they forgot Yahweh. They forgot he was jealous. They forgot he was faithful. They forgot that he was a provider and a protector. And here is how they forgot, if you look at it. They forgot by going after and serving the other Baals and Asherahs. And then look at verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he sold them. You know, this is the part when people go, would God ever, I want to say, hey, before you say this, I can almost guarantee you that I can find an example in the Bible where God did what you're about to say he would never do. <laughs> I'm serious. And I mean, and it does get complicated. So, and God is never evil. So don't ever say, Jim said, no, God is never evil. He is always good. You and I have screwed up ideas about what God is like and the depths to which God goes to make his name great. That's our problem from my position, okay? He sold them over into the hand of the Cushan Rathanium king of Mesopotamia and the people of Israel served them. So notice how, and this is kind of the scenario. They gave them over to the gods. See, one of the paradigms that you need to always remember is that you have Baal, and Baal is the one who is over a particular group of people, say the Syrian army. So this is the ruler, this is the king slash army, which find their strength and might from that. He is their provider and their protector, and therefore when people decide, hey, we see the success of them, therefore, why don't we serve them so that we can get what they have? And God said, fine, I'll just put you here. And particularly, it's the cushion group. And, and guess what these, the cushions did to the Israelites? Guess what the Midianites are going to do to the Israelites? Guess how they're going to treat them? Terribly. Because that's just what people do in this system. See, that's where the ethics come in. So what do they do? Rape, kill, steal, the things that you and I think are bad, and they are bad. But where did they come from? Well, that's how this system actually is designed. That's how this system is designed to work. Right? So God hands them over, and then how do they get out from this bondage that the Lord himself, I don't know if you have that underlined in your Bible, that would be a bad not word to underline, and the Lord sold them into. Now, again, I think order matters. It is not, and God looked down, and they were following him faithfully, and the Lord said, you know what, I think I'm going to just sell these people out. Like, that's not the scenario. What is the scenario? They forgot, they chased, the Lord sold. And the purpose of God selling is so that they might cry. And that from their crying, then the Lord would provide. <laughs> so this provider, protector, in many instances in the book of Judges, is like one concept. Sometimes we think provision, food, sustenance, protection, peace. Provide, prosperity, protect, peace, 
And notice that God brings a judge in each of these instances that is what? Is a provider protector. And it all fits, all fits hand in hand. Okay? And so when you look at this, and then even notice how these are divided up. Just uh, This is a small little piece. Notice, notice verse 11. In another word, I, I, I don't have an answer for it yet. I didn't have time to look at it. Look at verse 11. A couple of things that you need to note. Pay attention to the time. And so the land had rest for, what's 40 years? Okay, so number one, look at that. It'll, it usually is in increments of 40s. So in a little bit, we're going to see in the land had rest for how long? 80 years. So two generations. Oh, that's neat. So pay attention to that. I don't know if I have a lot to preach on that right now, but I think that'd be a good lesson sometime. You just got to really make sure you understand it theologically and don't just manipulate it for a cool idea. Go back and, and, and get the significance of what those are. Um, I didn't have time to look at that. The second thing is, is that this is a real common theme in the, the Levitical law or the Levitical uh, Mosaic law. And then we actually will see it again bringing back in the prophets. But that phrase, like what had rest? The land. That is really, I, I, I'm not even going to try to pretend right now to unpack all of that. But you do know that one of the reasons why God decided to kill all the Canaanites was for the land's sake. And your blood will cry out from the land. Like injustice, I, I don't understand how all this works. Um, and, I, and I don't think it has anything to do with, like, if you ever saw the, the movie that came out recently, the movie on Noah. Uh, you know, there that, that, that whole thing is about bad people because they exploited the land. I don't think... That's the way, not the way that God describes it. But there is an injustice that exists in our world that pollutes the land that the Lord then, at times in his own sovereign, he frees. So it's, it's interesting. This is what God keeps providing rest for, the land. Pay attention to that. Don't even have a full answer. Maybe we'll get it by the time we're, we're done this series. Okay? So the... Is the land. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that even, it even might be like a, a kind of a, a way of describing something else. I had a great conversation with Keith a few minutes ago, and Keith was asking, why did the left-handed guy have an 18-inch sword strapped to his right thigh? How does that work? I, I don't know. I literally said, I have no idea. I was glad I got Mesopotamia right. I was afraid I got that one wrong. Um, and so I'm not going to even try to pretend. But let me tell you something really kind of fun. Because for those of you that are really wanting to hermeneutically, right, interpretively understand, when you investigate things like that, what you usually find out, some, I don't even know what usually, many, many times though, you will actually find out that there's more going on. When details like that come up, it's amazing how you can find an understanding of what's going on. I just, I don't know what that is, Okay. But I've got a great book on exploring the biblical world where it goes back and it explains what it means to recline at the breast at a meal and what it means to be on the right thigh and not the left thigh and what it means to and how, how this works and why we're, they were taking off a shoe in terms of a covenant with Ruth and Boaz. Like, what, what is the shoe thing, you know? And remember when we were standing in the gate of that one city up north and probably a gate where actually Ahab the king, I sat, we, maybe you ladies did too, we were literally like right in the seat where King Ahab came and sat. And even though I hate Ahab, I thought it was kind of cool to be right there. 
okay? And so things like that come up, and it's amazing how when you go back and you look at it, yeah, they, they I don't know what it is, but it, it's usually things like, and the reason why I was on the right hand of the thigh, sometimes it's a practical thing, and in other times it's like a customary because the right leg meant da-da-da-da-da, this is how it works, and here's how that developed, and here's why that is. So there can be some really neat stuff when you look at that. That usually is... Um, Historical background, helpful in terms of pulling these things together. Okay, one last thing that I want to I wrap this up with in the last few moments that we have. So this really is what's going on, and this is where it begins to hit us, and this is kind of what I want to, to nail this on. If you do not have this book, you need to get this book. Um, somebody actually has my copy. I had to go steal Steve's a few minutes ago. Um, but this book is called The Eclipse of Heaven. It is by A.J. Conyers. It's a little bit of a slugfest. But overall, it is not. Um, it's a little on the dated side in terms of its historical references. It talks about Motley Crue and Bono and um, different things from way back in the, in the 80s. Uh, but there, chapter 8 is one. I've probably even read some of this to you before. This is, it reminds me of Judges. Um, in, in this book, in chapter 8, it's entitled Religion as Obsession. And he literally describes there are two kinds of, of religion that exist in the world. And we are actually called to the second. He begins this chapter, and I've got a number of books that describe this. Um, like when you hear, and the, this chapter begins with this, hey, there is this resurgence of spiritualism and spirituality in America today. And people are beginning to come back to church. Sociologically, there are some things that are happening. And I meet a lot of Christian people, and they go, yay. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that great? And what he says is, I don't know, it's more of just like a fact. It's 32 degrees outside. Is that good or bad? Well, it depends on what temperature you like. Right? I don't like it. Some crazy people do. And what he is saying is, is that what is happening in America, and this book I think was written in the late 80s, early 90s, what is happening in America, at least at that time period, is society is crumbling. Think judges. Society is crumbling and people are now looking for a meaning or a purpose outside because it's not, family's not working. Crops are not working. Things are not working. And they're trying to go somewhere. And I know a lot of people who even say this, hey, listen, as long as you find what works for you, that's, that's the most important. I get people to say this to me all the time. Hey, listen, like I, I know you're a Christian. Hey, if that works for you, now, here's the part that just crawls upside my back and down the other side and inside and all, is when I hear Christian people say that. You know, here's the one thing that we just should appreciate about those who are Muslim or Mormon or whatever, is that, hey, if it's working for them, and I mean, I mean genuinely working, like if it's, if it's providing family stability, like if it's providing like, like a good job, if it's, if it's helping them function and cope, then isn't that a good thing? Like, isn't that a good thing? And the majority of people in America say, yes, 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 yes. Okay? I'm mildly concerned to moderately concerned that maybe a majority of people who worship here on Sunday think the same thing. And if it's not a majority, it's more than I want to know. They literally think the same thing. And by the way, and they also think that the only response to that is to just get mad and throw rocks at those people. No, I, that's not what I'm asking for. But maybe like the truth would help. 
that it might not actually be better. Going back, I want you to just think about my mom's prayer for me. What was my mom's prayer? That I'd be a good boy, which is that I would remember. And what, what were the other prayers that my mom would have? That I wouldn't, I wouldn't have so much. And I, and I think I can see why. I literally, I, can, I think I can see why. She, by the way, she didn't want me to live in a ditch. She just wanted me to always depend on God, whatever that means. Mom didn't have a dollar amount. You know, I just, I, I never want you to lose sight of him and how much you need him. I don't want you to lose sight of that. Provider and protector. That's absolutely critical and absolutely huge. Okay? So on this idea here, and I want to, here's the part that I want to I get. I want to give you a diagram that's really, really helpful. Did I have a, I thought I had a sponge. There it is right there. Thank you. So here's the part. What do I want to, I want to keep a lot of this. Okay, I'll go over here. There are two kinds of religion, and the one that we actually see, there's this kind of religion, and this religion goes like this, we live in humanity, and we cry out to God for the benefit of what? Human purposes. Okay? Now, by the way, this statement in itself is not bad. Okay? In, in and of itself, I think this statement is easily redeemable. Okay? But I think you will agree with me that the majority of people don't use it right. The statement's not the problem. It really isn't. That can be redeemed. But how many people that you know, and they have it on their truck, right? And they have it on their whatever, their Facebook post. When they say this, how many of them are doing this? Right? Hey, we're down here. We know you're up there. What we need you to do is we need you to fix these things so that we can have our lives back. So that we can go through and have all of these things. Okay? So we've got a purpose and a plan. I've got a way in which I want to live my life. I've got things I want to do. I've got a, how do you actually fit into that? I just, I need you to bless what I'm about to do. Right? That's, that's, that's why I say I really don't need you to pray for my safety. don't know how much you're thinking about how my safety fits into the eternal plan of God. That's my beat. About my, the, you know, we kid around about the safety prayer, is I think you're thinking this. And by the way, I do too. Like, it's not like I don't. Okay, I do too. It's not like, hey, I've arrived and I want you to get here. It's like, no, I don't need you to help me with my sin is what I don't need. Okay? God, I want you to bless our church. For what? Well, so that we can be a big church. We can have a really cool building. And we can, and I promise we're going to help people. With what? Get SUVs and be great workers, right? Right? We're going to be good workers, right? For the glory of the Lord, right? 
hey, wait a second, I, I don't know, but I, I just smell a calf somewhere, a golden one. Is that not true? I think you forgot Yahweh. No, 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 no. We call it a Yahweh festival. Okay? But we're still approaching God for a human purpose. But what actually, I don't need to draw that. I always get that backwards. Transcendent purpose. Oh, it's an E. I hate the E's and the A's. This is Israelite religion. Not the bad kind, but the good kind. Israelite religion is God uses humanity for his purposes. Is that, not the, is that not the story of the Bible? Is it us using God for what we want? Or is it God using us for what He wants? Is that not amazing? And I want you to think about that. So we're not here to use God for what we want. We're here to be used by God to accomplish what He wants. Now here's what I love about this concept of ethics or morality. This one here uses and manipulates everybody. This is how you get rape, stealing, murder, exploitation, bondage, lying, cheating, stealing, right? You just can't get bad ethics from this. Because whose, whose purpose is it? By the way, another word for the transcendent purpose of God is His what? Is His glory. Tell me how you manipulate people like that. Tell me how you, tell me how you're, uh, you could ever get that wrong ethically. The answer is you can't. See, revelation comes to us and we remember and serve him. And this is what Israel, the Israelites needed to learn. That you don't use, because it's literally, this is what happens so quickly. God, Baal, Asherah, I mean, anybody at Marduk? These are different gods. Ra, IBM, USA, right? Wife, husband, kids, jobs, political power. Donald Trump or not Donald Trump, right? These things here become what? We want these for these. This is how idolatry develops. You just, by this, uh, the book that I'll never write, but I love the title, is The Idolatry of God. It's literally looking at how I and we do this. And the answer is anything can fit in here. Only God can fit into this. Don't be an Israelite. <laughs> Let me give you a benediction. Give me a second. 
May the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who faithfully provides and protects for his purposes, not ours, may he be the one that not only gives to you and protects you and provides for you, but may you see it as coming from his hand. And may you see and trust the goodness of it, even though the timing of it you are not comfortable or pleased with. And over time, may we as the people of God grow in an appreciation and in a faithful trust in him. Amen? Let's live that way. Love you guys.